Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Think of Me by S.H. Cooper My name is Dennis Majors. I'm 37 years old. I'm unemployed and don't have any real friends or family. No one to miss me. That's why I need you. I've been going somewhere, but also nowhere. I wake up and I'm in my apartment, but it's not my apartment. None of this makes sense, I know, but it's hard to explain. The best way I can describe it is that it feels off. Like when you're looking at one of those pictures that seems fine at first, but you realize there's stuff wrong with it the longer you stare. I notice the photos first. I keep a few in my living room. I'm in one or two of them. Or I was. When I'm in this other apartment that looks just like mine, I'm not in those photos. I don't have a reflection, either. I barely remember my own name. It's like I don't exist. It's been happening more and more frequently. Let me back up. Maybe that'll help you understand. Maybe not. I lost my job about six months ago. After I was laid off from the plant, I stopped going out. I didn't like going out. I don't like people. Without a job, there was no point. I can just order pretty much whatever I need online. I was getting unemployment, and I have all my bills set to auto-pay, so I don't have to worry about it. No one called to check in on me. No one dropped by. Basically, I'd managed to avoid just about all contact with the outside world. I thought it was fine. I've never minded being alone. Sometimes, most of the time, it's preferable. Others cause a lot of grief. After so long and so much of it, I was happy to be by myself. Well, happy. It was as close to the word I could get, I think. I was still alive, at any rate. And then I started waking up in that other place. The one that's mine, but not. Where I don't have pictures or a reflection. The TV and radio are static. Sometimes I think I can hear something. It's not quite a voice, but it's close to one. I don't know what it's trying to say. The first time I realized something was off, I went to a few doors on my floor and knocked. No answer. The entire building felt silent, oppressive and muted like a, a giant blanket had been dropped over it. Usually, I could hear cars and stuff from the street below, but not then. I didn't have the guts to go outside that time. Or the next. Or the next. I stayed in my apartment, 
trying to fall back asleep so I could wake up in my real apartment. I'd never know which version I'd find myself in. How do you tell people something like that without sounding like a lunatic? On welfare, a recluse thinks his apartment suddenly changes while he sleeps. It's the perfect combo to point to an absolute nutcase. Maybe I am, but I don't feel crazy. Does anyone? So, I endured it. While it was sporadic to start, the longer I stayed alone in the real world, I don't know how else to differentiate between them, the more frequent it became. I finally found the courage to leave my floor, but still didn't find anyone, so I went outside. It was overcast out there. Always is. And the quiet doesn't change. Cities aren't meant to be empty. I still recognized all the storefronts and the familiar cars parked in the same spots they always used, but the doors don't open, and there are no people. At least, not many of them. I've only found a handful when I'm there, and only a couple of them still qualify as people. This place, this place does something to them, to us. There's a lady who is always standing on the corner of Park and 7th. I avoid her if I can. She's got this mummified look. No meat to her, just leathery skin and bone. Almost all of her hair has fallen out. She moans a lot like she's hurting. I've never heard her speak. She just stands there, clinging to this road sign, moaning. There's a man on 36th. He's sitting in an alley. He looks worse off than the park lady. Can barely hold his head up. Because he seemed weaker and unable to chase me on his stick-thin legs, I tried to walk to him. He reached for me, groaning in this awful, dusty sort of way. His eyes were sunk so far into his skull, I thought they'd just roll inward and disappear into black holes. That was all he could do. Reach and groan and stare with dry, bloodshot eyes. I found another woman on the stoop of a coffee shop. She's still young, a bit younger than me, but has a weathered look to her, like she's slowly drying out. The first stages of becoming like the park lady in the alley man. She didn't seem surprised to see me when I walked up to her, just sad. I think we traded names, but I can't remember what she said hers was. I wish I could. Maybe it'd help her. I asked her what was going on. You're alone, she said. She had a raspy voice. I told her I was, and then I wanted to get out. You're being forgotten, she told me, just like the rest of us. I asked her for how long she'd been out here. What year is it? She stared ahead when she spoke, unfocused. I told her. It's 2019. She shook her head. It was slow and painful. She said it was March 2017. That it would always be March 
2017 for her. I said I didn't understand. The forgotten have got to go somewhere, she told me. When the world doesn't know you're in it, you get pushed out. You come here, and the longer you're here, the less there you are until you're not there at all. You don't get to go back until you're remembered. I left her sitting there, hugging herself. How do you respond to that? I was scared. I didn't want to stay in that place. I went back to my apartment and tried to force myself to sleep so I could wake up in the real world again, but I just laid there, thinking about what she'd said. We were forgotten, and this is where we wait to be found. Eventually, I managed to drift off, and when I woke, there was sound and sunlight and life. I'd come back. For now. There's not much to research about this forgotten place, at least that I could find. What I did find was a list of news reports of people who slip through the cracks and vanish for years at a time without anyone questioning it or looking for them. The most famous case was probably Joyce Vincent's. She was an English woman who simply disappeared for almost three years before her skeletal remains were found in her apartment. There are a lot like her, though. Christina Copeman, James Gales, Albertina Rambola. All of them left for weeks, months, even longer before being discovered. People ask how something like that can happen, and I think I know. They were like me. Alone, no one to think of them, no one to remember them, and so the world pushed them out into that stifled, silent place where all you can do is wait. And they stayed there, until one day someone remembered them. But by then, they'd been away for too long, and all that came back was a withered corpse. I don't want that to be me. I don't want to keep slipping further away until I'm stuck, rotting, waiting for death. I want to be remembered. My name is Dennis Majors. Please, think of me. I found a dead bird in my mailbox by Brandon Faircloth. Being alone is hard. When I was 11 and my parents split up, I felt really alone for the first time. My world was suddenly so different than it had been just the day before. My parents had been my best friends, and they were supposed to be best friends with each other too. When they told me they were getting a divorce, I just listened and tried not to react. Half my friends at school didn't have both parents either, and I needed to act mature about it. But inside, I was screaming. If they weren't really best friends with each other, then they probably weren't best friends with me. And when I saw how they were looking at each other, my father red-eyed and so tired looking, my mother's face stony except for her lips, she kept pursing like she tasted something bitter, I saw them for the first time not as parents, but as people, and it terrified me. In the six months after that, I spent time with both of them, but it was always...
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's awkward. I felt like I was engaged in some kind of clumsy, terrible dance with both of them all the time. Don't say the wrong thing. Don't mention the other one. Don't act like you like something too little or too much. We were all walking on eggshells made of glass, and each misstep left a scar on someone. That's why I understood when my father said he was taking a contract job in Australia for a year. I was going to miss him, but honestly, the main thing I felt was relief. We all needed a break from whatever our family had become, and my hope was that when he came back, things would be better, somehow. (sighs) Except he never did come back. He'd been there just over a month when we got word that he'd been killed in some kind of accident. I never knew more about it other than that we had to bury an empty coffin. My mother might have known more, but she was crying all the time for the first couple of months after he died, and after that, it just didn't seem worth bringing back up just to upset her all over again. That's the thing. I know my mother loved my father, whatever their problems might have been, and I know how hard losing him and then really losing him was on her. So I try to tell myself that it was just a mistake, a a lapse of memory or judgment brought on by everything that happened that caused her not to give me the last gift my father ever sent me. He had sent me stuff from the first week he landed in Sydney. Postcards, little books and toys he thought I'd like, things like that. But then they'd stopped. I had assumed he was busy or had just ran out of trinkets to send me for a while. He still called and talked to me on the phone every weekend, and he sounded fine then, so I didn't think much of it at the time. But even then, I didn't know or understand all the inner workings of my parents' relationship. They would still argue and hold grudges, and in the days leading up to his death, things had reached the point where my mother would immediately hand me the phone when he called, an almost accusatory look on her face as I took the receiver, as though talking to my father was somehow a betrayal. Even now, I think about things like that and realize I didn't know my parents as well as I thought I did. I still don't. The last six weeks have been rough for me and harder on my mother. She had a major stroke, and while she's been coming back from it, we were told she would likely never be fully mobile again. All things considered, she got off relatively light. Having to use a walker is much better than being bed-bound and unable to talk, which were the worst-case scenarios the doctors were giving when this first happened. But she's still been having to make adjustments in her life. Her ADLs, as the rehab therapist calls them, activities of daily living. She has to build back up to brushing her own teeth and hair. It sounds easy enough, but fine motor skills were giving her more and more problems than the balance and strength she needed to get out of bed and grab the walker. And there are some things that she just couldn't do anymore. 
I'd set up people to come over and clean, help her reach things she had a hard time with, and generally make sure she was okay when I was back home and three hours away from her. I've spent the last few weeks with her trying to get help to get her acclimated to the changes in her life, but also trying to get the house more organized so workers could find what she wants more easily. I've gone through drawers and boxes, closets and cupboards, and more than once I found some artifact from my childhood that made me smile or tear up a little. And then last Thursday, I was going through a guest room closet when I found a cardboard box I'd never seen before. When I opened it, musty air blossomed in my nostrils as confusion and a kind of sad anger filled my heart. It was packages from my father three of them. Things that must have come while they were fighting. Things that she hid from me out of spite or pettiness or whatever dark emotion told her it was okay to keep reminders of a father's love from their child. The boxes were well-wrapped and had never been opened, and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, I found myself hoping that this was all a mistake, that these weren't gifts from my father she had hidden from me at all. But they were. The first was a small set of books about animals in the outback. The second was a koala family that would link together with magnets to form a long chain. The third was a small, ornately carved wooden box. The box stood out the most, both because it was unique and because it seemed like an odd gift for an 11-year-old girl. It was similar in size to a pencil box, and maybe my father thought I was getting old enough that I'd want to keep jewelry in it or something. It also stood out because of the suggestion that something might be inside. It had thick metal hinges on the back of the lid, and the front was secured by a hasp lock ran through with a flat piece of the same metal that secured the hasp when twisted horizontally. I was reaching to turn the metal and undo the hasp when I noticed there was a small piece of yellowed paper underneath it in the box it had been shipped in. I felt my vision growing blurry as I saw my father's handwriting on the note written there. It said, I bought this from an old man who came to our work site yesterday. Poor guy looked like he needed money to eat and he said this box was special. He said there was a bunyip trapped inside it. I asked him what a bunyip was and he just laughed. He said I should open the box and find out. But don't worry, I already checked it out before sending it to my girl. The only thing in there is a cool-looking river rock, but the box is neat too, right? I miss you both a lot, and while I'm enjoying my time here, I'll be glad when I'm back too. I'm so proud of my girl. We'll all get through this. Love you, Daddy. I wanted to go and confront my mother with the letter, ask her how she dare keep something like this for me, that he didn't just belong to her, and it wasn't her choice whether I got to talk to him, how he had loved us both, and... He was dead because she'd pushed him away and I fucking hated her for it. I wanted to do all that, but I wouldn't. There would be no point in it. She was broken, almost past the point of mending, and all I'd be doing by hurting her would be making myself more like her. So I took a deep breath, gently folded the note and put it in my shirt pockets, and then I opened the box. The inside was unlined beyond whatever light varnish had been used on the wood itself, and as my father said, there was just a small rock in there. 
It was very rough and porous, much like you would imagine rocks from some underwater volcano looking when you first brought them out into the air and into the light. But part of why I thought that was because of the condition of the rock itself. It was wet. It was visibly moist and setting a small pool of clear liquid like an ice cube plucked fresh from a drink. I involuntarily moved the box further away from my face as the realization of what I was seeing sunk in. How could it possibly be wet, or even oily, after all this time? Was it just a trick of the light? I tilted the box and saw the liquid flow languidly in the direction of the gravity before suddenly fading away. Within moments, it looked as though all the moisture had evaporated. Tearing a piece of the shipping box off, I used it to experimentally poke the rock, moving it around the wooden box and looking for any sign of the liquid. But there was nothing. It just looked like an old, dry rock now. Deciding I had imagined it due to being upset, I closed the box and carried it with me to my old childhood room where I had been sleeping. That night I told my mother that I was going to have to leave on Sunday, that I had spent as much time as I could spare. The next morning, I went down to the mailbox to get the mail, and I noticed something strange on the mailbox door handle. It was greasy. I saw nothing on it, and aside from being slightly distasteful, I didn't think much of it until I opened the door. Sitting on top of the mail was a dead mockingbird. I let out a little scream, but I made a point not to touch it. I'm a bit of a germaphobe, and I certainly didn't want to catch whatever had killed that thing. In my initial panic, I wasn't yet to the point of wondering how the bird had wound up in the closed mailbox, but more just thinking of ways to get it out. In the end, I just rolled over the outside trash can and used a stick to rake the poor bird's body into it. It was as I was picking through the mail to see if any of it was worth salvaging that I started thinking more about the mechanics of it all. It had to be some kind of dirty practical joke. There was no way the bird flew in there, closed the door, and then died. The house was out in the country, so neighbors were few, and none of them would have done it. My mother didn't have any real enemies that I knew of, and neither did I. So that left random kids or some nut delivering the mail or coming by my house on a whim. Either way, I was going to try and make sure nothing like that happened again. I called the post office, and while I was initially slightly harsh and accusatory, they just kept being reasonable and apologetic, assuring me that when our mail carrier, who had been at it for over 20 years, had delivered the mail at about 9 that morning, there had been no bird in there. I then called the police, but they just politely laughed it off, said to call back if there were any further signs of a disturbance. I couldn't necessarily blame them, but I was still frustrated. I really did have to leave soon, and the discovery the day before had just made it easier. But I still loved my mother and didn't want some demented kid or adult fucking with her after I was gone. I debated telling her about the bird as I walked back up to the house, and in the end, I decided against it. It would only make her worry or give her ammunition to try and guilt me into staying longer. I would just keep watch for the next couple of days and see if anything weird popped up. The rest of that day was uneventful, and by the time I went to bed, I had half forgotten about the bird already. The next morning, I couldn't find my mother. I had searched her room, the bathroom, everywhere I could think of. She clearly had gone somewhere because her walker was gone too. After checking the house thoroughly, I went outside. 
That's when I saw her lying next to the mailbox. I let out a yell and ran to her, afraid she'd had another stroke or broken something in a fall. Just as I reached her, she sat up and her eyes found mine. She gave me a small smile. Hello, Collie. What are you yelling for? I came up short. She looked, well, better than she had since the stroke, and her voice didn't have that slight slur I'd had such trouble getting used to in the last few weeks. And Collie... She hadn't called me that since I was a little girl. It was always Colleen, with a clipped and almost formal tone. I realized my mouth was hanging open and I closed it as I knelt down beside her. You fell or something. I just found you out here. We need to get you to a hospital. Let them check you out. As I was speaking, she was already standing up and waving me off with a little laugh. Her walker lay discarded in the overgrown ditch nearby, and she was showing no signs of needing it. No, no, no need for that. I'm doing okay. I just... She paused, looked up to the sky for a second before smiling wider and pointing at the mailbox. I just came out to get the mail, figured I should try and do it myself, and found the dead mouse in there. She pointed to the ground near the mailbox post where a fat gray field mouse lay dead. I picked it up thinking it wouldn't bother me just to toss it in the trash, but I guess I'm more... She paused again, looking up for a moment before continuing. Squeamish, and I realized. She let out a delighted laugh. (laughs) But I'm feeling fine now. Better than fine, really. I wasn't sure whether to be happy or worried, but what she was saying seemed to be true. She talked with sense, I saw no signs of confusion or lack of coordination, and she actually was moving and talking much better than she had before. I watched her carefully the rest of the day, scrutinizing her for any sign of a change, but she continued to move around the house like her old self again. I made her promise to follow up with her doctor the following week and to let me know if she started feeling the slightest bit odd. She said she would, but that she thought it was just one of those things. It may be, she mused, that picking up that smelly little mouse was just what the doctor ordered. We stayed up late that night playing cards, and when I went to bed that night, I slept better than I had in a long time. I didn't claim to understand it, but wasn't that the definition of a miracle? I chided myself to just be grateful and hope that it held. I woke up early the next morning just as the sun was coming up and trying to be quiet as I moved around my room and made my first attempts at organizing and packing up all the clothes I had brought. After a few minutes, I realized I was hearing noise from the kitchen. My mother must already be up, and if she was in the kitchen, maybe it was a good sign that she felt good. I walked down the hallway toward the kitchen when suddenly I froze. I heard a soft, fast, rasping sound that reminded me of a rattlesnake's rattle. I looked around, but saw nothing out of place, and the noise seemed to be coming from the kitchen anyway. It was fading, but still present as I rounded the corner and saw my mother standing at the sink looking out the window. The noise seemed to be coming from her, as insane as that sounds. The feeling that she was somehow making the sound was reinforced when it cut off as she turned to look at me, her eyes sharp and bright. Morning, sleepyhead. I made breakfast. My mind was racing throughout the meal. 
I kept trying to think of some way to ask her about it, but I couldn't think of anything that didn't make me sound crazy or foolish. Yet, as we made idle chit-chat and I talked about my plans when I got back to work, I came to realize the real reason I wouldn't mention it to her. I was afraid of her now. Something was different than it had been before, more than her newfound health and energetic demeanor, more even than the strange, dangerous sound I fucking know came from her before she realized I was there. She was just... wrong, somehow. By ten, I had my stuff packed and was about to go inside for the last time to say goodbye. My hopes were that, given time and distance, I would realize I was just stressed and stir-crazy and I could go back to just being happy that my mother was okay. It was as I was turning away from the back of my car that I realized that, in the excitement of the day before, we'd never gotten the walker from where it lay near the mailbox. Seeing it made me feel a surge of guilt and relief. I was just being silly. Whatever the reason, she was doing better. She wasn't shackled to this thing anymore, and God willing, she would never have to. I was bending down to pick up the walker when my gaze wandered to the storm drain that ran under the driveway. My mother's dead eyes were staring back at me. She'd been stripped naked and stuffed into the drain her body torn and broken in several spots, but somehow dry and bloodless as well. Pushed in deep enough that I hadn't seen her body the day before at the mailbox, but not so deep that I couldn't see now that she died screaming. I fell to my knees, my head swimming as I crawled toward her. Reaching out my hand, I touched her and she began to crumble away. I recoiled, and then trying to find a way to have proof, I fumbled for my phone, but by the time I had it out, her body was only so much pink powdery sludge at the bottom of a storm drain. I saw something out the corner of my eye and turned to see that the thing that looked like my mother, staring down at me, her face looking concerned. What are you looking for, Collie? Lost something in there? my hand shaking. I pushed myself to my feet and stepped back to the other side of the ditch. I don't know. I, I thought I saw something, but I guess it was just my imagination. She chuckled raspily. Yeah, probably so. Just be careful messing around with things like that. She gestured toward the drain. Could find something dangerous in there. I tried to laugh, play it cool, but I couldn't manage it. I really have to get going. See you later. Bye. I hoped that my tone was light, but I doubted it. It was all I could do not to run to the car, and as it was, I still gave her a wide berth and kept glancing back until I was inside with the doors locked. Twenty minutes later, I had to stop at a gas station until I could stop shaking so bad. Since yesterday, everything has been quiet until a couple of hours ago. That's when I got a text. Still feeling great. Miss you. Thank you again for staying with me and helping out. I'll have to come visit soon and find a way to thank you. What's Playing in Theater number 15 by Man and Lysette 
Wyatt was on duty that first week when the cinema closed due to the quarantine we're all dealing with right now. For better or worse, he didn't want to go back for the second week. I guess being paid minimum wage to literally sit around all day doing nothing is worse than sitting all around all day serving customers. It makes sense. There's no distractions, so the clock moves slower and slower every minute. Jamie and Patricia alternated on the second week. The managers took care of week three, but I guess it was beneath them because I was assigned week four. I guess I should be thankful. So many people are without work right now, and I was getting paid to sit on my ass all day. You might be wondering why the hell we're staffing a closed cinema in the first place. Well, welcome to 2020, where we pay 19-year-olds to babysit the concession stands of an empty theater on the off chance that an Uber Eats order comes in, because some Serbonite could not... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Go another day without a $15 bag of popcorn and a $10 bar of candy. I'm not kidding. Load up the app. Look up your cinema. They're open for deliveries. It's ridiculous. I guess the bosses felt guilty because we were given a card blanche to do whatever we wanted while we waited for orders to come in. And orders did not come in very often. I had initially written off the text Wyatt had sent our work friend group after his week on duty doing nothing. A simple, don't go into theater 15, with no explanation as to why, didn't exactly ring any alarm bells. Theater 15 had the gaming setup we rent out to party groups. I figured he logged into his account and was trying to protect his data. Get wrecked, Wyatt. Come to work and log out of it if it matters so much to you. The chat room exploded in memes soon enough, and a warning was buried under them. My first day back on the job was freaky. My manager stopped by to show me how to work the hot dog stand, separate from the confessions island. She left about an hour in. I'd been at the cinema after closing a few times, so it's not like I wasn't used to a mostly empty building, but it was different without my co-workers. It was so eerily quiet, you could hear a pen drop. It was dark, too. Not quite emergency lightning dark, but, like, about half the fluorescents were off to conserve electricity. I wasn't sure how many orders to expect, so I spent that first evening meandering the large lobby, using my employee pass to play arcade games for free, browsing Reddit on my phone, and eating so much fucking popcorn. I was there from 3pm to 10pm, 7 hours, and in that time, I got one order. Small popcorn, extra butter. Wow. Imagine having that much disposable income. I had to clean the machines an hour or so after use, bringing the grand total of work-related tasks accomplished that night to a whopping two. Definitely earned my paycheck. It really felt like babysitting once the kids have gone to bed and the parents left you junk food. The second night, I felt more comfortable wandering off. I kept a work tablet on me so I'd know when an order came in, grabbed the newest releases that arrived right before the official shutdown, and settled into Theater One to watch movies all night. We didn't get any orders that evening, so that was great. Someone did call asking whether we were open, which 
lady, did you not hear the pre-recorded message saying we were open? Someone did call asking whether we were open, which, lady, did you not hear the pre-recorded message saying we were closed at the start of call three? She was like, hi, are you open? And I was like, wham, bam, no, ma'am. Some people. The third night, the manager had pinned a list of tasks for me on the bulletin board. It was spring cleaning kind of shit. Organize uniforms by size, take inventory, deep clean the hallways. Ugh. I cranked up the music on my phone and had myself a cleaning montage. Interrupted once or twice for orders. Popcorn and... And honestly, I can't wrap my head around this. Nachos and cheese. Who the fuck orders nachos and cheese for delivery? I'm honestly throwing up in my mouth just thinking about it. Moving on. I don't know if the boss expected the task to take me a few shifts, but I finished them all in one night. Nothing new showed up on the bulletin board, so on the fourth night, I got my gaming on. Glorious Theater 15 with all the latest gaming consoles and a little library of games to play, and I had it all to myself. Have you ever thought of exploring the wilds of Hyrule on the big screen? Because let me tell you, it's chef's kiss. Everything was fine at first, but after maybe half an hour, I started getting this weird, creepy, crawly feeling all over my shoulders. That I'm feeling watched feeling, you know? I knew I was alone, so it was completely irrational, but I couldn't shake it no matter how hard I tried. I had to get up and move to the last row so I'd have a wall behind me. It helped a lot, but the sensation never fully left. And then the blood moon started rising in the game, and I was like, yep, fuck this. I closed the game and went for a little power walk to shake off my oogie boogies. That flipping blood moon music, man. Why is it so unsettling? I went back after a bit and put on everyone's favorite red and blue plumber, because there's nothing creepy about yahoo, yahoo, yahoo. It was fine. Everything was fine. Nothing weird was happening. And suddenly... That feeling came back. I swept the room by gaze, and my stomach dropped when I saw something sitting in the front row. I went through a roller coaster of instant panic, rationalization, counter-rationalization, and more panic. Like, holy shit, who was that? Oh, it must be the manager. Wait, no, the manager would call first. Tense, I pawed around for my flashlight, eyes locked on the figure. I aimed it right at them. The seat was empty. I didn't see the movement of someone ducking down or anything. The seat was just empty. I panned the light around and it was still empty. No figure, nothing. I had to walk down there and check row by row just to make sure. Nope, no one. I convinced myself it was a shadow or maybe a bug on the projector, but at that point, I was done with Theater 15 for the night. I put the things away and headed back to the lobby, narrating everything I was doing in a sing-song voice, because that's how I cope with my nerves, okay? Just as I arrived, I nearly had a heart attack, because the phone rang. I picked it up and... Hi, are you guys open? For fuck's sake. The rest of the shift was uneventful, though. Every now and again, paranoia would hit, and I'd find myself looking over my shoulder, thinking one of my co-workers was playing a trick on me. I'd loudly announce what I was doing, where I was going, and say, I know you're watching me, 
to try and keep them from jumping out at me, but yeah, no. I was okay on the fifth night. I've given myself a good old pep talk. No, there was nothing weird about Theater 15. Why it got into my head. Everything is fine. There's nothing scary at all. Go play your video games. I got an early order of popcorn, so there was plenty left over for me to take to Theater 15. I chewed loudly and bravely, announced to the room that I wasn't afraid and that I was going to have fun this evening. But, despite my newfound courage and conviction, I still sat in the very back row. I started exploring Hyrule again, surviving another blood moon, finished my popcorn. Everything was swell. And then, near the last row of the first set of rows, I saw it again. I saw it with my own two eyes. Not from the corner of my eyes, not for a split second before it was gone, not something projected on the screen at seat level. It was on the seat. It was a person. I could see the outline of a male haircut. I could see a neck and shoulders. I could see some movement, granted not a lot. I stood up, knocking over my empty bag of popcorn, and swore. Flashlight out, beam right at the chair, and... Nothing. Not a damn thing. In the distance, I heard the phone ring, and I hurried out of the room without checking every row so I could answer the phone. Another person asking if we were fucking open. Bro. I massaged my temples and paced back and forth in the lobby. It was crazy. Being afraid of a theater room was crazy, but I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't go back. I left my trash there, and I moved to the other side of the building, watching a movie in Theater 1 instead, where I felt nice and safe. There's nothing more emboldening than the light of day and a good night's sleep. 3 p.m. on my sixth day at work, I showed up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. I headed to Theater 15 to clean up yesterday's mess. I had the lights on to... Uh, to see better. Yeah, we'll go with that. I climbed up the stairs all the way to the back of the theater and scooped up my trash into a dustbin. As I turned around to go back down, I swear I saw someone standing halfway up in the middle rows. I did a double take and there was no one there, so I thought, okay buddy, you're losing it. I so badly wanted to not be afraid of that room. You have no idea. Badly enough that I actually went in with the last of the movies I hadn't watched yet. I kept up that obnoxious habit of talking to myself. Wow, what a great movie I'm sitting here watching in a perfectly normal theater room. No ghost here. Nope, everything's fine and dandy. <sighs> what an idiot. I could hear my voice cracking. I had nothing to prove to anyone. Nothing. So why was I subjecting myself to this torture? I hate myself. If you guessed that things weren't fine and dandy, you are motherfucking right. At some point while watching the movie, I felt it again. My chest got tight and I started to feel lightheaded. I could sense him there. I didn't even have to look. He was just a handful of rows away from me and I could smell his rancid breath like something died in Granny's attic. Goosebumps formed on my arms, equal parts fear-induced and due to the sudden drop in temperature. 
It wasn't just my imagination. I could see my breath hanging in the air. I shivered as I glued my eyes to the screen, trying not to look as fear paralyzed me. I saw the form in my peripheral vision shuffle from one seat to the next, lining himself up as though purposely trying to put himself in my direct line of sight. The lights were on, the movie was playing, I had my hand on my phone, I had every opportunity to run and call for help, but I couldn't. I held my breath as he suddenly seemed to phase into the next row, now only two, maybe three rows away from me. Hard to tell without looking directly. I tried not to make a peep as if I could go invisible if I was motionless and quiet. When I saw him phase into an even closer row, I lost it. Finally able to move, I threw my popcorn at him and ran down the stairs screaming like a banshee. I don't even know if my popcorn hit anything. I didn't look. I couldn't. I ran back to the lobby, the only place I felt safe, and called my manager saying someone had broken in. She told me to wait outside and said she was on her way. She and another manager arrived, and we swept the building room by room, but there was no one. No fucking shit. It was a goddamn ghost. Not that I'd tell them that. She actually had the nerve to ask me if I could still come in and sit the next day. Can you believe that? I said no, and she offered to review the security footage. For some reason, that made me feel a little bit better. We looked at the tapes and confirmed no one had come in or out of the theater room aside from me. We went through an entire week's worth of footage, just to be sure. There's no video of the room itself. Studios don't allow it, even if the cameras aren't aimed at the screen, but I just... (sighs) She said she swore she'd get someone else to come after tomorrow, but she needed me one last night. She couldn't get anyone on such short notice, blah, blah, blah. On the last night, I was a nervous wreck. Every shadow made me flinch, every stupid arcade game coming to life gave me a heart attack. Every first pop of the popcorn made me think I was going to die. I didn't go into a single theater. Not number 15, not any of them. I was like a tiger in a cage, watching, waiting. Didn't get a single order. I felt like I was wasting my time. The hours were so long... Then, around 8pm, the phone rang. I wanted to scream at this fucking idiot who couldn't get the goddamn message that we were in a fucking pandemic and the cinema is fucking closed. Regal Cinema, how can I help you? I said through gritted teeth. I heard breathing. Slow and shallow. And lasted for a few uncomfortable seconds before the voice and a low rasp of an old man. What's playing in theater 15? I... I know it must have come from the phone. I had the receiver up against my ear after all, but I swear... I swear to all hell I heard the voice behind me. I left, then and there. Fuck my shift, fuck my replacement. I left the machine with popcorn still in it. I didn't tell anyone I was going. I just left. Corporate sent out an email today. Due to trouble staffing, our one particular cinema is going to close from now until the end of the quarantine. 